Hey everybody, this is Carlos. Thanks for joining us on today's show. Today we're going to be speaking with Thomas Cobb of Boa Addicts. We're going to talk about how he got involved in the Boa game. And we're also going to be talking about the VPI gene and discussing if it's getting too saturated in the hobby. Finally, we're going to be talking about how to set up your Boa collection for commercial success. Boa Rack Radio is on the air now. Welcome everybody to Boa Rack Radio. I'm your host, Carlos Rojas of Morse Unlimited, and with me today I have my co-host, Thomas Cobb of Boa Addicts. What's up, brother? How's it going, man? Good. How about yourself? Good, man. Good. You know, just like we were talking uh, right before the show started, getting the kids to bed, getting everything uh, knocked out so that uh, we would be able to spend a couple minutes chatting, dude. So, yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, man. So for those who are not familiar with you, dude, um, maybe let's kind of get you know, right at it and start talking, uh, you know, from the beginning. So what kind of sparked your interest in reptiles? And then specifically, when did the boa thing start? Oh, uh, I've always had a kind of a natural affinity for just animals in general. Um, Both of my grandmothers were uh, biology professors and my mom was a hepatologist. So, uh, you know, predisposition for science. And at a young age, um, I guess maybe it's just inherent in my character. I've always been fascinated with them. I think one of my earliest memories is going back east and seeing my great grandma in Connecticut. She lived in Hartford and she had a big garden and a huge pond on the property. And my dad told me stories of snapping turtles and things like that. And I remember when I was like seven years old, I caught a leopard frog. And this leopard frog was like the most fascinating thing to me. You know, I was like some tiny kid, had (laughs) no prior experience other than zoos. I caught this little leopard frog and I brought it inside. Everyone's freaking out, you know, like, oh, my God, what are you doing? And I just I wanted to take it home. But, you know, leopard frog on an airplane, 2300 miles wasn't going to pan out too well. And from there, you know, I just had I don't know. That was kind of like the start of it. Um, My mom bought me my first uh, bow constrictor in 1991. So I was, well, I was born in 83. So I was like eight, eight and a half years old. <laughs> That's hilarious, first, dude. Yeah. A long time ago. I mean, I'm 36 now. So we're talking, you know, 28 years ago, I got my right. first bow constrictor and the pet store we actually got it at here locally in Utah is actually still in business. It's changed owners a couple times oh, since wow. then, but you know, the namesake of the pet store um, was actually the owner at the time, you know, the founder He's who I got my uh, original from. And I remember that snake like the back of my hand. You know, still 28 years ago, I still remember that snake. And I think that's actually uh, one of the things that caused me to kind of get into one of my secondary professions in carpentry and building is I made him this massive plywood enclosure thinking I was super cool, had like a plexiglass front. I was doing this when I was like 10 years old. Oh, know? wow. That was, you know, I'm. I don't come from a family that's like kind of naturally inclined to build things, but I guess I was. So yeah, started a long, long time ago. Um, you know, as I got older, my, uh, wants and needs changed. My interests didn't necessarily change, but additions came in. So I got big into cars and, you know, race cars and things like that. So the reptile thing kind of pulled off. Um, I gave my last, uh, boa that I had to my half sister who coincidentally actually still has her. I think she's got to be close to 20 years old now and she Man. still has, she still has that snake and, you know, coming back into the hobby, it was more of when I was in a life position to where I'd met my wife, 
2009, got married in 10, had my son in 10, and, you know, started a couple businesses, um, bought our first house, then sold out or, you know, rented that one out, bought our second one. Then I was like, hey, this seems like a good time to jump back in. And that was in 2013. So, you know, I had a hiatus for a, a period of time, probably a good eight, 10 years without keeping any reptiles just because, you know, I was so busy doing other stuff. Yeah. But, so when, um, when you jumped back into the hobby, did you, uh, like research at first and then go specifically for a morph or did you just kind of go out and, you know, do what, you know, is super common in our world, but just kind of that initial impulse buy that kind of um, gets you. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm a very researched based person. It's just like inherent in my character. Um, you know, I was, I was, concurrently when i got back into the hobby i was going to school at the university of utah for environmental and organismal biology and chemistry so you know i figure if you're going to do something right like you want to do it right and i didn't i mean i kind of jumped in in the want but i was trying my best at the time i mean this was back when forums were still more popular um, than any facebook groups so there was still a, a plethora of information you can just google and find and read about and then you see what morphs you like what genetics make them up so on so forth you approach you know at the time where the bigger breeders producing these potential morphs and you know start to talk to them and you know as we know some some of the bigger breeders are kind of a pain in the ass and they think they're too cool or they don't want to spend the time to you know in essence like mentor you or teach you or kind of coddle you a little bit when you're a newbie um but you know, I was I was fortunate enough to find the morphs at least at that time, but I was really enamored with and kind of jump into it. Um, you know, with my wife's blessing to a degree. Like obviously, we right. didn't know it was going to grow into what it has. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that's just like a snake keeper's uh, future. You know, like you get one, then you get a hundred. It's just the way it goes. Yeah, it's it, honestly, dude. Uh, I, I think my daughter phrased it perfectly. She calls it like Pokemon syndrome. <laughs> oh yeah for sure like once you get one like it's you just catch okay all, i gotta get the next one i gotta get every single one that there is yeah my son's huge into pokemon now and it's the same thing like he sees one and then he's like he starts telling me about these other ones that i've never even heard of and it's just the same thing with morphs you know like when you're first in the game you're like i don't even know what that is so then you start googling it and you're like oh yeah that is pretty badass i want that now too so you add it to your list of wants and so yeah you know it's a uh, i got into it in 2013 like mid-year and started with a melamine rack but i i had uh that was my first i guess 2012 is when i purchased the animals um and was my first season breeding so 2012 and my first year producing was actually 2013 i went four for four on my first pairings ever getting back into it uh did a moon glow times the snow did aztec times a widow peak vpi that tracy produced i did a double hit St. Pierre blood do a double hit St. Pierre blood or no, not, not double hit. I guess it was a hit blood, hit blood. Yeah. Post hit type two, I think it was. And so I hit bloods in 13 and then I had my fourth pairing was a double hit call snow to a moon glow. And I hit that too. So I did four for four my first, first time ever trying to breed, which was pretty epic. Yeah, no, for, for, uh, the folks listening to our podcast kind of for the first time, and maybe they're not as familiar with uh, some of the intricacies and difficulties 
that are related to breeding boas. You know, when you're coming over from species such as ball pythons, where for the most part, you know you can get them to go almost every single year. They don't appreciate really how difficult it is to get boas to go on a consistent basis. So kudos, man. You know, oh, yeah, def- a lot of dedication. Definitely. Boas are different, you know, and obviously there's degrees of difficulty within boas. Yeah. Uh, you'll, you'll have your people who say, okay, well, central stuff is always easier and more, pro- more prolific. Um, then you get into your Colombian based morphs or, you know, just Colombians in general and they're the next level up. And then you get into your trues, uh, your BCC stuff. And those are considered, you know, to be some of the more difficult. Uh, and, and a lot of that is just with their, you know, endemic natural environment. Um, they all vary. And so if you could emulate their environment, uh, closely to what they see in nature, you have a better chance. And I think when people keep cross species or subspecies of boas, they're keeping them all very similar to like what the standard Colombian base is, but they're not necessarily modifying for that natural environment. So yeah, yeah. Boas aren't, aren't for the faint of heart, man. It's, it's thrilling and exciting, but it'll break your heart too. Oh yeah. A hundred percent, man. So let me ask you, when you were first getting started in the game, I know uh, that was kind of the epic days of like Jeff Ronnie's, uh, you know, uh, boa constrictor forum, and we still had the king snake forums going hard at that time. So, who were your mentors initially when you started uh, uh, oh, delving geez. your toes into the the world of boas? You, you know, I think the the first person that I would say uh, stands out as someone who mentored me to a degree, but kind of showed me the way was actually dm um mm-hmm. she she called me out on a forum um on on boa constrictor dot or what was it what was his forum boa constrictor dot net or something like right that, right right jeff ronnie's forum and because i went on there like oh yeah i got this i got this i got that i got this because when i came in i started going pretty hard and buying everything and right. she was like no you're gonna burn out and sell your shit you know don't don't be like the rest of these guys and i'm like no that's not me you know when i go i go hard um, so she, or he had called me out and, you know, from there we became really, really good friends. And, you know, I, and he started the Ferrari line or was one of like the early adopters, like, um, didn't start it, but was one of the definite early adopters and believers of the, of the Ferrari lineage, uh, still one of the best polygenic pastels out there for sure. hundred um, percent. You know, it's, it's, and, and surprisingly, I actually don't own any of it. But I mean, there's there's kind of rhyme to reason with that, right. and we might get into that when we talk more about you know the the combinations I'm working with. You know. Yeah, not for sure. So, are you still working in carpentry? What are you doing for a living uh, these days now, dude? I'm outside a of hustler. reptiles. <laughs> I'm a hustler, man. I'm a hustler. I'm with dude. you. I'm with yeah, you. I'm a hustler. Uh, so I, I do uh, general contracting work. Um, we opened a couple restaurants this last year. I did all the GC work on that and uh, flip homes, remodels, um, buy pallets at auctions, sell stuff, breed snakes, sell snakes. Literally, I'm a jack of everything. You know, I, I do it all. Yeah, no, for sure, man. And I've noticed that. And then uh, another thing I've noticed is a lot of times when I check out your social media, I know a lot of times your kids are getting involved with the hobby. So kind of Talk to me about what it's been like kind of raising your kids within the hobby and how your wife kind of sees the hobby. Uh, my kids are tremendously spoiled because I'm their dad, but they love it. Anything animal, anything bug, they'll see a black widow, they pick it up. They see a snake, they want to grab it. They see a lizard, they want to catch it. They see a grub, they want to 
dig it out of the ground and inspect it. You know, it's 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 definitely passed on from me to them, which is amazing. Uh, you know, one thing I can say to people who are thinking of getting in the hobby or at least, you know, increasing their presence as far as quantity, animals, breeding, money expenditure, things like that is family first, always. Uh, I think that's one thing that when you start becoming semi-successful or you become so, uh, what's a good word to use for it? Like you come, you become so engrossed in the hobby the other things start to fall to the wayside, either spending time with family, um, missing events, paying attention to the wife, all that's important. And so, you know, my first word of advice is your family first, always over the snakes even. And, you know, my wife, she's been my number one supporter in the fact that she, the way she worded it, she says, I know you'll never do anything that puts harm to our family or puts us at risk. And, right. you know, she has full faith in me that, Whatever I set out to do, I do, you know, uh, I can't say it hasn't caused strife. Uh, you know, there were many years when I had to spend an inordinate amount of time taking care of stuff just because my setup isn't what it is today. And, you know, it's taken eight years of, ev of evolving how I care for the animals, the quality of the caging, the setup that I use, uh, the facility that we built, you know, we custom built everything for it. And it's streamlined my process so I could take care of my whole collection, you know, in the course of around two hours a day, uh, you know, seven days a week, six, seven days a week. And when you're talking a collection my size, that's phenomenally low. Yeah, no. So um, speaking of the, your collection, so kind of give us a little bit of an overview of your business and kind of, you know, what your primary focus is right now. Well, you know, it's, it's always started out as a hobby. Um, I kind of consider it more of a supportive hobby because anything that would be considered like an in income just goes directly back into it. But, you know, currently I'm sitting at, you know, around a thousand square foot facility. Um, we got another seven racks on route right now. So I think we'll be sitting around 24, 25. Now is the facility years. located, uh, at your home, near your home? How's That's that separate. That's okay, separate. cool. Cool. Got it. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, leave work at work and bring, you know, stay at home at home type deal. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we custom built this facility about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I think right. it was, um, moved the collection and last year was actually, you know, numbers wise, wasn't my best producing year, but it was also our first year into that facility and, you know, stabilizing temperatures, humidities, racks, hot spots, everything changes than when you have it in your basement. And, you know, I had it in my basement for like six years. Right. And so, you know, it was, it was a new endeavor to try and dial it in, but we got to figure it out, you know, at this point, um, you know, from the business aspect of things, I think people kind of have this perception that it's get rich quick. You know, right. you, when you put one snake with another snake, then you have 30 snakes and you sell them all for $5,000. And that's right. just really not how it works. Uh, massive amount of initial startup and overhead cost um, to do it correctly if you want it as a business. You know, I, I recommend that most people view it as a hobby. Even now, I still view it as a hobby. You know, I go in there and I enjoy it every time I do. You know, it's, it's like my free time. Like, I can just clear my head and, you know, get out of all the other space of my life and just focus on the animals clean them, you know, fresh waters. That's like one of my favorite things is because then you know that they're happy, they're good and they're comfortable. 
And yeah, I mean, business wise, it's not for the faint of heart. Like I said before, they give you an immense amount of joy, but they can break your heart too. Because one thing I always try to explain to people when I try to mentor people is biology is fickle. It does not care about your feelings. It doesn't care how much money you have. It doesn't care Preach. what car you drive. It doesn't care yep. who you're married to. It doesn't care what racks you have. It doesn't care what lineage of animals you have. Biology just does not care. So you could have the absolute best care in the world. You could have the best caging, the best water, the best feed, the best experience, and your best snake dies. And then Facts. you're like, oh my God, what do I do? What did I do wrong? Why did this happen to me? IBD, arena virus, sunshine virus, whatever, coronavirus, I don't know, you know? Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's, it's a reality that when you're dealing with live animals in a live animal-based business, that unfortunate circumstances can arise biologically. And a lot of the time, it can't necessarily be explained. Uh, you know, the, the science is very limited comparative to that of like humans, right? And right. so even if you get pathologies and necropsies and things like that, you may never get a definitive answer. And, you know, I think when people are viewing this as a business, they also need to come to terms with the fact that that is a guaranteed scenario. It is not a if, it is a when. It'll happen. Right. And obviously, the more you keep, the more odds you have of something negative happy, happening, you know, to an animal or two animals or three animals or what have you. And, you know, as your numbers go up, just your odds of having a potential biological issue with the animals can go up as well, you know. And so, I mean, business aspect wise, I think that's something that a lot of these new guys need to consider is you can spend three grand on a snake and he dies a year and a half later and he never produces for you. And what do you do? You know, eat that three grand just it's the name of the game you know it's the risk we take so right. so is there a particular size right now that you're looking uh, to kind of build out numbers wise with animals where you feel oh, no. like you're going to be comfortable or is it just kind of playing it by ear and seeing you know what feels handleable uh, it's all random man i mean I, I would say in 2016 uh i had I'm trying to think my son was born my my youngest was born in 17 so i actually did a that's so let me reverse there's there's another aspect business wise and well and this kind of couples in with like wife and kids you need to know when you need when you need to take a step back you know massive growth massive um purchasing of animals buying collections uh you know like i'm gonna get 55 new animals this year i'm gonna quarantine and do all this and then all of a sudden it turns into 100 and then 200 and then you're like i'm overwhelmed Real life work is is killing me. I need to pay attention to my family, my kids, my wife. I have other responsibilities. One of the biggest things that people need to realize is they need to know when to step back. And right. and and I'm not I'm not talking like step out. I'm just talking step back, like yeah. slow your roll a little bit. Success comes, you know. It's like it's like team slow grow, you know. Team no sleep. Like there's there's a reasons why I've started to say these like little hashtags because when you go too quick. You get burned out. And so there's been three instances since 2012 that I've kind of had a burnout moment where I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing? It's too much. I got too much going on. I'm trying to build this, remodel this, house this, kids that, wife this, work this. I mean, problem this. It's just it's it's one thing after another. And if you can't find that that equilibrium between all aspects, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Then the quality of care that the animals are getting goes down or the quality of care that your family's getting goes down. You know, it's a tit for tat. You have to sacrifice one thing for another. So I've had 
two instances where I pulled back kind of due to being burnt out. And then right. my last pullback in 17 was actually because my son was going to be born and I had to leave the country for two and a half months. Yeah, I think and I that. Yep. it was one of those instances where I couldn't relegate, you know, 300 animals to my mom to take care of. And, you know, it was just too much for her as much as she wants to help. You know, at the time she was 60, 68, 69 years old. It's just too much, you know. And so, I mean, comfortability wise, number wise, I mean, I could I feel like I could comfortably handle like 600. Wow. Uh, issue. Wow. Um, I mean, I'm I'm sitting current about 400 right now. Okay. I've spent about two hours a day. That's it. And. You know, it, it's repetition. It's just getting used to the process, the way I clean, the way I clean, uh, you know, the cages, the aspen, the windows on the caging, the flooring in the facility, uh, shop back and chlorhexidine. It's all just second nature now. So when I'm in there, it's like autopilot, you know. And well, I'm sure that doing it in a facility makes it a lot easier for you. This way you can kind of focus on it. You don't get distracted by kind of outside influences. Oh, 100%, 100%. Being able to kind of separate, and that's why I said it was like separate home from like the, the, the physical work of taking care of the animals. You know, I don't have to necessarily worry about like, oh, I got a kid running by behind me and a, and a snake's smacking its face on the cage or something like that. You right. know, I'm there by myself and doing my thing i set up i have like a scenario where i'll say i have racks one through 20 well i'll hit like racks one through six and i'll bang those out i can do a freedom breeder 1575 so it's 15 levels high and five tubs across 75 total i could hit that whole thing for like neonate to yearling boas in 50 minutes yeah and so, you know, I'll go through 70 to 75 snakes in 50 minutes on that. When I get to like the 0824s, which is the FB80 size or FB70, no, it's FB80 um, from Free to Breeder. You know, there's 24 sub-adults to adult males in that rack. And I can do that whole thing in under 30 minutes. You know, I'm about a minute a snake. And Damn, so, man. you know, I eat. Yeah, I mean, of course, and and this is just like general quick maintenance, you know, like doing water bowls, right. spot clean, cleaning the windows, making sure the snakes are good. You know, if I need to do like full cleans, that's when it gets really intensive. And, you know, my cleaning process is probably one of the most strict that, you know, anyone would find. And so when I'm when I'm in like full clean beast mode, it takes me like days and days and days. But that that's like. A couple times a year you know i don't need to go too crazy because i keep up on the maintenance so much on a daily basis i mean i look at every snake every single day so i can see when one defecates and i'll hit it right then i don't put it off till tomorrow because i think uh you know one of my favorite sayings is don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today so if you see a snake needs something today just hit it real quick and be done with it and you're good tomorrow you know yeah, no, for sure. Now let's talk about maybe some of the lessons learned that you you've kind of you know learned kind of throughout the way, and we've and we've hit on a couple of these already. But what are some of the things that you wish you knew when you first started in the hobby that you know you would want to pass on to the folks listening? Uh, honestly, patience. I think I, I I came into this you know gung ho and and pedal to the metal style you know, and I was met with immediate success, which is very abnormal i would say um especially producing like my very first litter ever was moon glow times snow calls call line right so it was like a whole litter of moon glows and snows my very first one ever and i'm like oh yeah this is easy man this is freaking gonna be awesome they're like 15, at the time they were like 15 or 1800 bucks a piece you know yeah. and i'm like 
But then guess what? Only one of that entire litter survived because the you know what? There's an old adage that I had heard years ago was it's not a call litter until one of them dies. You know, <laughs> call yep. strain stuff just it's it's not my thing. You know, but I I was met with immediate success and then I was immediately kicked in the nuts and like hey this isn't as easy as you think. And then I had three more letters, and so I was kind of like even out. I was like, oh, yeah, it's still cool, you know. But I'd say patience. People need to be patient. They need to understand that going fast, chasing this idea of, like, world's first, you know, s'mores. Because <laughs> right. I'm a troll, you know. Everybody yeah. knows, you know. I'm always like, s'mores, world's first. Like, no one gives a shit about world's first, dude. Like, raise the stakes right. Make them healthy do quality genetics, and make the stuff that you enjoy. That's the other thing is do what you want. Don't do what other people say or what what other people think is cool. Like you might like call sunglows. They're not my personal favorite. If I like DPI stuff, cool. We can be different, but we still enjoy the species. You know what I mean? So, you know, do what you like. Do what makes you happy. If you, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Yeah, and, no, so, I, and I think you, you hit on on something that's actually really, really important. We see a lot of people coming over kind of from the ball python industry, coming into the boa industry as they're looking to expand. And obviously within the boa industry, they see a lot of the things that they are familiar with within ball pythons, right? They see the different morphs. They see the ability to kind of produce. They do see obviously that there's a marketplace associated with it that tends to, you know, be relatively healthy. But when they end up coming back or coming into our industry, one of the things that they do is they tend to chase what's out there instead of really focusing on quality. And that's one of the things that I've noticed that a lot of folks have had a hard time understanding is that they don't understand why within the BOA industry and within the BOA game, we're more willing to pay more for quality than than maybe what they've experienced in the past, right? Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, it's it, it just harkens back to the idea of like quality produces quality. And more often than not, that is the case. And so, you know, of course, you're going to have casual keepers. The, their, their goal is, well, I just want to make some snakes. You know, they, they don't need to be top tier, you know, craziest morph out there, combination, new this, new that. Like they just want to breathe. You know, that's cool. You know, and, and if your goal is to produce the top tier stuff, at least in your mind too, because what I consider top tier might not be to someone else, but that's, that's just independent, right? You know, as long as I'm happy with what I'm producing quality wise, I think that that's what matters. Um, there definitely is a standard and I, I call it levels, you know, in the game where obviously there are going to be nicer quality animals or certain attributes or lineages that hold more weight. And I think what you see a lot in ball pythons is you could have a spider ball python from 15 different people and none of them look markedly different from the other quality wise. It's just a spider ball python. So when you have these ball python guys come in to boas, it's kind of like, well, let's grow them quick and breed them fast and produce. And there's no real thought to like longevity of the quality lineage, you know, and it's, it's like refinement, you know, going back to like Ferraris and these, these old school style polygenic traits, um, you know, Ferrari being one of the older ones, uh, Jeff Ronnie's pastel dream lineage being one of the older ones. Um, you know, we, we have these lineages that there's a reason there's a lineage. And I think one of the big difficulty is you'll have an individual get one of these nice animals and then they polish a turd with it and so they took they took an animal that was exceptional 
and reduced its quality because they want to breed it quickly instead of finding the correct counterpart that can complement the quality. You know, and I think that people are quick to spend money on one and then not spend money on the second because they want to produce quicker. Of course, you know, I, I think as, as it becomes more common knowledge, and more accepted, the quality is, you know, reigns supreme. I've seen a I've seen a transition in people to where really even even your casual keepers are really starting to focus more on what is the quality of the animal that I'm getting versus like I just want whatever I can get and pair it and make babies you know and, right. and that's good you know we're we're seeing we're seeing a change in the industry that's really focusing on quality and what that'll do you know in and of itself is it'll increase the quality exponentially over the next ten years let's say and then what is considered like the top tier now might be like the mid grade then because everything hopefully will continue to get better. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, man. And I think we're seeing a lot of that, you know, especially with some of the lines of uh, VPI. Um, I, I, I know I noticed like red Panthers seem every year to get significantly better overall within the industry itself. Right. So I think you're a hundred percent sure, a hundred percent on point with that. So um, let's talk about um, like the 2016 issue that you ended up having. So maybe uh, kind of give our listeners a little bit of background about what ended up happening and then how that kind of made you uh, kind of evaluate the hobby and how, how you pivoted uh, to keep yourself successful. So that was, that was actually in 13. Oh, in 13, uh, sorry. Yeah. It happened in 13. And yeah, so long story short is I had these um, new ARS uh, big boa racks that I just had delivered. And, you know, they, they come with the big vision boa tub, uh, you know, big, massive, right, right. opaque looking tub. It looks like a grow tub, right? And so yeah, I, I literally out, have one right next to me. As you, <laughs> it as literally you looks me. like a grow tub, like you're going to yeah. do like some hydroponic stuff. And I had them in my front yard um, because in, in transit and delivery, of course, you know, there's going to be grime and debris and whatever, um, you know, environmental impact on the equipment itself so it's like instead of just putting an animal directly in it you want to clean it well i thought to myself well what's the easiest way to clean it i'll take it outside and do it in my driveway so i had um i want to say 28 of these vision boa tubs on my driveway and a nosy stay-at-home mom neighbor decided to you know stick her nose where it quite didn't belong oh lord and she called the the authorities saying that i was growing marijuana in my basement (laughs) yeah it was it was it was glorious i'll tell you that was that was (laughs) especially in a state like utah man yeah yeah more funny well and and see that's the thing is i mean we we stereotypes are there for a reason we do have a lot of stay-at-home moms here who really have nothing better to do you know than pay attention to what their neighbor's doing so the the police show up they knock on my door I open it you know I'm just like a normal dude I own I own a frozen yogurt store like I'm just like totally chill you know and they're like hey are you Tom I'm like yeah what's going on and they're like okay can we talk to you for a minute I'm like sure why not so I let him in which was my first mistake you right. know by the way to all the listeners don't let the cops in you know tell them to go get a warrant um secondly uh they're like well what are you growing in your basement I look at him quizzically I'm like what am I growing in my basement? What do you mean? What am I growing in my basement? They're like, well, your neighbors called and said you have something in your basement. I'm like, oh, my boas. Do you want to go see them? And they're like, yeah, that's cool. You know, I had boa fire racks and I had these new ARS racks that I was just setting up. And so, you know, the police come down. They're like, oh yeah, this is like legit. You know, and it, I custom built the room. 
um, when we finished the basement. So I, I had already like planned for this, you know, this was, this was just one year after I, I had got back in and we had already custom built a room, you know, with greenback drywall, completely mm-hmm. heat controlled, temp controlled, humidity controlled, yada, yada. And so we take, we take them down there and they're like, Oh yeah, this is cool. I guess they report back to the, uh, ordinance enforcement who then contacts me and says well they want to inspect it so they come and inspect it and they're like all right well we don't see why this is such a big issue but my neighbor pressed it and because she pressed it more authorities got involved um they came and knocked on my door three days after initial uh meeting saying that i didn't have an exotic animal permit so i'm like all right cool well i'll go get one happily so i go down to the city And I go to the licensing office and I say, hey, can I get an application for an exotic animal permit? The woman looks at me and says, we don't have an application for that. I'm like, but I've been instructed that I need to get this permit. How am I supposed to apply for it? And she looks at me dumbfounded and she says, we've never had anybody apply. So I was the very first person in the history of the city to ever even request for a permit. And so that's the thing is, you know, ignorance isn't necessarily bliss, but I had no idea that that was even a thing, you know? Yeah. And... So from there, they are like, okay, well, we don't have an application for you. Like they didn't even have one drafted. They couldn't even pull this up in their ordinance list or any, anything. They're like, well, we can't give you a per or an application, so you can't apply for a permit. I'm like, all right, well, let's you know talk to the city manager and see if we can get a permit drafted uh, through the attorney. And two days later, they call and said, we're going to refuse you a permit application because. Um, you're going to be cited. And I'm like, what am I going to be cited for? They're like, for not having an exotic animal permit. I'm like, how the hell can I not? I, I can't even get an exotic animal permit, but now you're going to cite me two days Are after I request. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this, this was just back and forth. And we were just like, oh my hell, this is a mess. And so, you know, I was fortunate enough that um, I had the entire community on my side, honestly. Um, it blew up because yeah, someone, I think I remember hearing it like on Urban Jungles Radio. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I did an interview with that. Danny, who's a buddy of mine on Urban, and you know it turned into an absolute shit show. Literally, um, we had a online international petition with. I mean, I think it ended up around five thousand international and, and local, you know, continental signatures everywhere right. from Malta to Paris to. The Maldives to the Caribbean, you know, people saying, like, leave this dude alone. Like, what are you guys tripping about? So then the news caught hold of it. I did interviews with Associated Press, Fox News, Channel 2, like KSL, all these all these news stations. Um, you know, I had journalists coming out and doing interviews. And, it, yeah, I mean, it went international. And so at that point, we're like, okay, this is a big deal. Uh, the city said that they were going to change the ordinance, stating that you could only have one an- one exotic animal and you needed to have a permit for it. Because the ordinance read that you needed to have an exotic animal permit for an exotic animal. Did um, it associate it, any number with it that did not asso- It did not associate any number. So the ambiguity in that is actually hmm. what saved us as, as a hobby in the city. Because of that ambiguity, they couldn't say that, well, you can only have one. Because they came back to me at the time I had 27. And they said, well, you can only have one. I'm like, but you're ordinance doesn't state i can only have one they're like but it does i was like depending on how you read that ordinance and interpret it 
right? So, so there was, there was, uh, you know, if you go to court, there was no way to prove that that ordinance stated one. And so we had several different ordinances um, from the city that designate quantity. So, like quantity of dogs allowed, quantity of pigeons allowed, quantity of uh, apiary bins uh, for beekeeping allowed. So they were posting all these quantities for specific species or specific animals, but they didn't do it in re- in reference to exotics. And so we got them on that point, which they couldn't refute. So I was able, you know, I was, I was given a stay of relief in essence to where they're like, all right, well, until we figure this out, you don't have to move your animals, which was, you know, a, a very important aspect of the, of the fight, uh, at which point Phil Goss, a friend of mine from uh, the wonderful organization, United States Association of Reptile Keepers, USARC, uh, the number one reptile organization for our rights. He hits me up and says, hey, I'm coming out to Utah. We're going to deal with this. So Phil Goss himself flew out here and wow. we had dozens of people going to every town meeting. Um, you know, there are there are a lot of proponents and a lot of opponents. So we I mean, we had a battle for sure. And in the end, you know, the city came back saying, well, we're going to change the ordinance to where only people can only have one exotic animal. And we were able to get them to pull back on that and say that you can have up to 25 on a permit. And if you're going to breed, you could have up to 50 offspring at any given time. So a total of 75. So we right. went from one, which is what the city was fighting for, to 75. And I call that a win in our book oh, for absolutely. sure. This, this, this is precedent setting. You know, if, if this had gone through, especially at the time of the Lacey Act violations and things that was going on with the retics and berms and anacondas and potentially boa constrictors at that time, you know, when, when all that Lacey Act stuff was going on, uh, you know, this, this had pretty big implications if a law had been passed stating that you only had to have one or you, you only could have one. And the way they defined exotic animals, they say an exotic animal whose indigenous habitat is is not within the continental U.S. But right. you know, we we had some arguments there. Uh, you know, in law jargon, well, what is what are we talking about when you're talking about indigenous habitat? Are you talking to rainforest habitat? Well, I could argue that the Deer Creek Estates down in Florida has an active living boa population down there, boa constrictor imperators. Right. I believe they're imperators. And so, you know, it's one of those things where, well, I could argue on that point, we, the United States does have a natural population. So are you going to deem these exotic? Another point was, well, you're going to term exotics by anything whose habitat is not indigenous. Well, what about a hamster? Hamsters are from Syria. Yeah, and that's the first thing I thought about when right. you just said that. What about a bearded dragon from Australia? What about a chameleon? You know, like, like there's all of these very common species that are kept all across the state. And especially, you know, also within that city, how are you going to enforce that? And, you, you know, their statement to me was, well, we'll only enforce it when we're notified. And so, in essence, they were wanting people to rat on other people saying, hey, look, little Bobby has a hamster. Go give him a ticket because he doesn't have a permit. And I was like, you know, you can't do selective enforcement. Law is law. You know, everybody has to abide by the law. So either one person does or nobody does. You know what I mean? Like you, you can't just target a single individual. And when you do, I mean, it's just like targeting that you see, you know, with, with law enforcement doing it all across the country over dumb things. You can't just target a single person. You know, if you're if you're going to enforce something, enforce it equally. Right. So, I mean, in the end, you know, uh, I learned a tremendous amount. It was probably one of the most difficult times in our short life. Uh, you know, being a married couple, two young children. Uh, I had like a three-year-old and one and a half-year-old. I mean, very stressful inducing, but. We made it through and, you know, we set a precedent for the hobby. Um, you, you don't retaliate and act retarded and do crazy stuff and, you know, represent the hobby in a respectable manner, articulate, think about what you're doing, 
educate yourself, research it, and, you know, lean on the people around you that can buffer maybe something that you're falling short on or can give you better advice, you know, and, and we have great outlets for that. Again, like you said, we have phenomenal outlets there and, you know, they have attorneys on the books. Phil Goss is amazingly educated, you know, in regards to this stuff and, and they're there for our rights. And so, you know, when they were trying to impose on what I felt was my natural right to the pursuit of happiness, and that was another one of my arguments, you know, uh, it, it worked out in the end, you know, and I gained a lot of notoriety for it. I think I garnered some some respect within the industry. Um, at least I hope so, because I try to represent everybody in a good manner. You know, not not all reptile keepers are nuts. You know, I mean, I, right. I wouldn't say I'm not, I'm not a nut. But I mean, I'm not like one of those crazy nuts, you know. <laughs> yeah, just slightly nutty. Yeah, just so, slightly. So speaking of uh, slightly nutty, talk about uh, the team no sleep background and kind of where that came from. <laughs> you ever been married to a Chinese woman? I have not. I, <laughs> That's but what I it am is. married to a half <laughs> Filipino woman. <laughs> oh yeah, so you you, you kind of get it. I kind of yeah, get so, it, dude. I kind of get it, brother. <laughs> yeah, I I I I, I have been um, molded in a, in a good manner. You know, team no sleep really comes about like it really came about with the snakes. I think honestly, because yeah. instead of doing snakes during the day when my kids are awake and when my wife is awake and when I can have present family time, I go and I do it while they're sleeping because then I don't need to abut like the snake time that I need to take care of the animals right. against family time. You know, I can focus on the family as much as I needed and focus on work. And then, I mean, it's a detriment, you know, like I don't sleep very much. I went to bed at four in the morning yesterday, woke up at 7.50 today. Day before that, I went to bed at, well, surprisingly, because I forgot it was daylight savings. I went to bed at like 3.45 in the morning. I was up at 7.50 again. Um, day before that, I went to bed at three in the morning. I was up at eight. Day before that, I went to bed at two. I was up at 7.10, you know. So Well, I think it's pretty notorious, man, that like within all the guys that I know within the industry, you're probably one of the dudes that hustles the hardest. And I know, like, for example, if I, like, you know, bust open my Facebook, I can usually expect to see you on there kind of, you know, still being active, showing that you're still around. So, yeah, well, well, that's yeah. actually one of my favorite things to do is to help people, you know, yeah. like, like a lot of a lot of people have a mixed uh, idea of like the type of person I am. Um, but some of that comes just with the perception that I'm conceited, I guess. But I mean, it's all in jest, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I'm more of a joker than anything. Like if you need legitimate help, I'm more than willing to help, you know, and answer questions. Of course, if it's something that you can just research, I mean, I might tell you like, Hey, you know, here, here's a source. You might, you might slightly troll. <laughs> well, 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 I just tell them like, go read about it yeah, first. Like yeah. if you have a legit question after you've researched it, then hit me back and I'll, I'll help you out. You know, but I mean the trolling side of things, it's more of just like fun. I don't try and like truly offend yeah. people. You know, I just, I mean, sometimes, you know, if they're like... Sometimes people idiots. get a little bit sensitive, though, dude. Let's <laughs> yeah, be honest right. here. Right. Like like John Ray is, man. I love to troll that guy. Yeah. So <laughs> let's talk about what's going on with your season, man. Talk about some of the pairings that you're doing, some of the things that you're hoping to produce. Oh, well, I'm hoping that I could hit my first season of Labyrinths. Um, wow. Yeah. I, uh, I was one of the first, if not the first person to... To invest in the project and unfortunately up until now we haven't had very much luck with it but this year um, my 15 male finally put in work so I'm hoping that 
I can hit, uh, I mean, I guess the best out of that pairing would be a Hyperjungle Labyrinth, uh, 100% hit Sharp Snow. So wow. that would be pretty cool. Um, from there, uh, what's and, and has stuff? any has anybody really worked the labby into the sharp the sharp gene? You know, we, we see a lot of the work into the VPI thus far. Uh, you, you know, Je- Jeff has has it in the sharp. Um, okay, the original pair that I bought, I bought two, uh, a one one two thousand thirteen uh, pair from his first first litter uh, from Carlos that were pos head sharp. Uh, unfortunately, right. both both those animals, um, you know, for some reason passed away. And, you know, we did pathologies and necropsies and nothing ever came of it. Again, like I said, the heartbreak, uh, you know, you're just met with it sometimes. Um, you know, Labyrinth into Sharp, I think, has been done at least in the POSET form. I, I would say most people have gone the VPI route just because of the popularity of VPI. Right. But with the Sharp stuff, to me, it was, I, the Sharp Snow is actually my son's uh, snake. And so it was his oh, cool. first, it was his first breeding. And I figured, what better way than to throw a Hypojungle Labyrinth on it? Right. I mean, it's pretty pretty good for an eight and a half year old. Heck yeah, it is. Or man. not? I guess he's nine and a half now. Yeah, nine and a half. So you know, it, it, I think that'll be pretty cool. Um, you know, Labyrinth's a great project. It's uh, very new. You know, very infancy in its stages, and so I, I think we're going to see some real epic stuff pop out here in the next couple of years. Uh, you know, that, that's going to really take it next level. Awesome, man. So um, basically. How have you really uh, set your collection up currently for commercial success? Kind of what what's your feelings on that? Uh, really, it just comes down to streamlining. I mean, time is money, right? So if you anything you can do that expedites your ability to take care of the animals properly is worth its money. And so, you know, one of my biggest things that I did is I transitioned. I, I started out with bow files and melamine racks. Um, right. I transitioned to like older style used freedom breeders in 2012 and 13, and I had those ARSs. And then at that point, um, I actually purchased Tony uh, Famosat's uh, full collection out of Cali Green Ant, uh, you know, very popular founder of the Red right. Rum lineage, actually. So I bought his whole collection, and in doing so, I, I received a bunch of vision racks and. I've never been a fan of vision racks, so I sold them off and I got some more freedom breeders and that was in 13. So then in 14, I was like, all right, well, I mean, this is becoming something much more than what I had expected. So I hit up, um, freedom breeder at the time and did my first order of new racks. And since then, um, I run all of the brand new freedom breeders, stainless steel racks. Um, the new tubs, I have seven in route right now. Uh, they should be here maybe like next week. Uh, injection molded tubs. I mean, best in the industry. Oh, absolutely. Stainless steels, antimicrobial, um, never rusts. Like, it's fantastic equipment. Jesse's a good friend of mine, you know. Big shout out to Jesse at Freedom Breeder. Team, sleep too much because he's not sending me <laughs> my racks <laughs> right now. He's always sleeping instead of welding because he's lazy. But yeah, I mean, I mean, streamlining, you know, finding out what setup works for you. I think one thing I learned too is don't do assholes to elbows. Like you need room to move. You need room to maneuver around the animals. You need room to take care of everything properly. Cleanliness. Cleanliness is next to godliness, man. Like right. I see some of these people's collections. And I'm just like, what are you guys thinking? You know, like, like don't bare minimum, you know, first off they're alive, right? So take care of the animals. Second off, how do you get anything done? I mean, I have major OCD, so I have to keep it like in a very specific manner. Right. But you know, cleanliness, uh, and that'll that'll yield your success as well. 
cleanliness, 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 you know. Uh, also, don't view the animals as cash cow. You know, the, they're sentient beings. You know, they, they, re, they rely on you 100% for their care. So take care of them in the proper manner that you should take care of them. And now I'm not saying, like, go get Primo water like me. You know, I go to Walmart and I get all bottled water for the animals. I do 35 gallons a week yeah. on water changes. I'm not saying you need to do that. You know, like, if you don't want to be that crazy, because uh, I am a little, little specific and anal. But, you know, uh, definitely put in the time and the effort. You know, Under, understand bad things happen. That's another aspect, like we've talked about. You know, you need to... You need to understand that it won't always go your way, but be persistent and be patient and work hard and, you know, grind. I mean, put in the time. No, no one who's successful in this business hasn't put in the time to do it. You know, Jeff, I think was, was his 34, 35th season that he's oh, yeah. been breeding boas. Um, At least he's put, in his, he's put in his time. You know, a lot of these other big breeders, Big Mike think he's 20, 21 years, basically Boas, you know, 20, 20 plus years. Um, you know, a lot of these guys have, have paid their dues as far as time is concerned to become successful, you know, and ride the waves, you know, markets go up, markets go down, like just, just carry that passion. Like if you don't have the passion for it, if you're just viewing it as like a monetary outlet, quick cash, you're going to be out before you came in. And we've seen it time and again with people who come Absolutely. in, they, they throw big money down. And, you know, their baller shot collar and everyone's like, oh, new up and comer. Three years later, they're gone, you know, because it, their motives weren't in the right place to begin with. And so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the recipe for success. Uh, support network. You know, you need to have people around you that understand how much you care about it and support you. You know, my number one support network first starts with my wife. Uh, super patient, but she pushes me hard. She... If I want to go to bed at night, she'll be like, get up and go work on snakes. And then I think about it, well, she's right. Get up and go work on snakes because then tomorrow I get that extra two hours of wrestling with the kids. Right. Instead of working on snakes, you know. And, you know, my mom, she's been tremendously helpful. And my dad, he hates snakes. Like, straight hates snakes. But, no shit, I was in Taiwan for the birth of my son. And he was pulling babies out for me when I was like 17,000 miles away with my mom. Now, this was like a, a litter that you don't lose babies on. This was one of my uh, Key West Motley Fire litters, right? Oof. This is at the time like when they weren't made, right? right? And they lost like three of them in my room. I'm like, oh my God. So I come home, they're like, <laughs> we lost these babies. And I, and so then, you know, two years later, I have a leucistic litter. And actually, this was just last year. We had a, a hit, hit another leucistic litter and I was in California with the family. And my mom sends me pictures of these animals. I'm like, oh, sweet. And we had three leucistics in the litter. And I come back and there's only one in the tub. I'm like, oh, oh man. God. You know, so so they do their best. You know, uh, they, they definitely are supportive. And, you know, because they're they're not as experienced or, you know, knowledgeable as me, I can't expect the same. You know, I can't hold that same expectation. But, yeah, having, having a support network around you and, and people that, that believe in you, too. No, I mean, they don't need to believe in your dream. They just need to believe in you, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, show me your friends. I'll show you your future. And it goes with your family, too. You know, whoever you keep close, that's who you're going to emulate most. No, that's absolute gold, man. That That's nothing but awesome tips. So where do you see the future of the hobby moving to? Epicness. Epicness, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, really, like, like that's what I see. And I don't care what anyone else is doing. 
honestly. Like like when people when people look at my profile and it says everybody just wants to be liked and accepted, except for Tom. Tom doesn't give a shit. I really don't care what anyone else is doing. <laughs> like it, it, it's not my business to care what they're doing, right? It's their animals, their money. They can do what they want. And you know what I want to see is I want to see people push the envelope as far as quality. I want to see new combinations. I want to see quality of care go up. I want to see people enjoy what they do. I want to see com- camaraderie come back. You know, that's, that's I think, one of the biggest things that we miss these days because, and a lot of it's social media based. You know, right when I came in was uh, kind of the dying, heaving breaths of what I consider like one of the most camaraderie based times in the hobby. And, you know, we, we lost a, a lot of integral people that kind of were viewed as the legends, you know, right. to the hobby. And as, as far as popularity was concerned, maybe they weren't always making new morphs or coming up with new stuff. But, you know, they were just the happy, happy people who are like, yeah, dude, let's make some cool stuff, you know? And, I mean, in the end, I, I think that people view it too much as a competition. And that's a detriment. You know, I mean, competition's good, don't get me wrong, because it pushes the envelope of, like, people wanting to do better, right? Well, when it becomes negative, I think that's when we when we start losing like the real reason why we're doing it. You know, we're we're all in the same hobby together because we love reptiles, right? And you know, we don't need to be pot shotting people and 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 doing like malicious shit on purpose just to be an asshole. Like like trolling, I try and do it like in jest and it's fun and if people have a problem, they'll hit me up and I'll be like, No man, I'm just kidding with you. Like for real. But, you know, like we see a lot of this inner fighting and this this arguing and like these feuds that go on and it's just it doesn't do anybody any favors you know so so i mean future wise i I, like i said the markets go up and down i think the the we have a bright future honestly we have more combinations now than we ever have we have more individual morphs than we ever have we have some really hot hit hitting stuff that's going to be released um you know in the next couple years between the pied stuff and know combinations within that pie gene um, more fire combinations assistant combinations see what can happen there you know we, we have a lot to a lot to look forward to i think awesome man so now we're going to do something that, that we're going to do with everybody that's on the show and i'm going to hit you with the dirty dozen all right so these are going to okay. be 12 questions sure. short answer just kind of give me your thoughts on each one of those and uh okay. let's knock it out man so yeah. number one uh what's the size of your current collection uh around 400 Okay. Uh, number two, uh, frozen thought or life? Uh, frozen thought, unless I'm starting uh, neonate boas. I, I do start neonates on live just because when you're having, you know, 150, 200 babies sitting there dangling a mouse for, you know, 20 minutes to try right. and get one to eat is kind of a pain. Um, there are proponents to doing frozen thought from birth and i understand some of the reasoning i always go live but usually by the third to fourth meal i transition to frozen thought as much as i can and i've only ever had to force feed one boa out of all of the animals i had produced yeah and 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 that was that was the first feed you know they they just would not take a a mouse but i forced fed a frozen thought next one they took so you know uh, yeah yeah frozen thought for sure all right. What's your favorite morph? Red rum. Well, I mean, it's not a morph, but it's, you know, polygenic. Yeah. Red rum, dude. <laughs> yeah, Murder, of course. Um, if, I, if I had to pick, like, an actual heritable morph. Oh, geez. That's tough. Honestly, I would say it's got to be jungle, dude. I love yeah. jungle. 
I love jungle. It's, it's the best additive morph out there. You know, 100%. it does so many cool things. And yeah, jungle for sure. All right. What's the most overrated morph? <laughs> I knew you're gonna. I knew you're gonna do that to me. Oh god. Yeah, I'll get some shit for that. Oh. People are gonna expect it, so I'll just say it. That kraken, dude. I can't get over the kraken stuff. Kraken. <laughs> <laughs> I just. I can't. Um, a lot of it is the history behind the animal. I know Slavic, and I don't want a pot shot, right? Like I respect yeah. Slavic. You know, I call him sexy Slav. He's he's a good friend of mine. Um, he has them. He's explained to me in depth why he believes that they're a legitimate thing. Uh, I'm still not personally sold. I appreciate he's taking the time to at least break it down better than anyone else has. But it's it's kind of like that the opaqueness or the, the fogginess surrounding the morph or supposed morph. Um, you know the history behind it. I just can't get behind it. You know, it's not definitive to me. And and the way people will say they have it but can't explain what it is, like. I mean, you know, I I got a lot of things, but I can't explain what they are. Well, it makes no damn sense if you can't explain it, you know. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite part of the hobby? You know, cleaning snakes, dude. Cleaning snakes. <laughs> oh my god, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like they're happy, you know. Like they're yeah. they're they're chill. Like you're you're being a good keeper. You're taking care of your business. You know, it's like, like your meditation, right? Yeah, for real. I mean, when, when it's nutty, you go in there, you kick on your, your Alexa or whatever you got, whatever music you got, and you just jam out and get in your routine. You know, if, if, if I had to choose something outside of my collection, favorite part of the hobby, I would think, is the few friends, like true friends that you gain. You know, I, I have a couple that I would consider like real friends outside of Boas that are like ride or die style. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, namely John uh, Wingsauce. Uh, he flew out here, helped me on one of my houses that we were getting ready to sell. And I mean, dude's a ride or die friend. Like, you know, like he's a brother, you know? And, yeah. and I mean, the people can make it, you know, it, it is what you make it with the people, but there are some people in here that really make it worth coming to, you know? Awesome. All right. Number seven or actually number six, what's the worst part of the hobby? Oh God. The worst part of the hobby, um, mites and, and the people that think, the it's okay to send mites to people and the people that think it's okay to inundate the animals with inordinate amounts of pesticides because they can't take care of their shit. <laughs> yep. It's that simple. All right. Uh, number seven, who are your favorite people in the hobby? Oh God. Favorite people. Shit. Let me look at my chat. It, you know, I, it, it's mostly the people that, that I view as, as like people that I could shoot shit with, you know, the people who I enjoy the most, like just talk to outside of snakes, even, you know, um, John Reyes, he's a good buddy of mine. He's a cool guy. You know, he's, he's funny to joke around with and mess around with. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of them, honestly. Uh, Chad's cool. Matt's cool. Um, Kyle, I love Kyle, honestly. Kyle, Kyle's probably my singular favorite person in the game who's still in the game because right. he is one of the most honest, laid back, just totally chill just good all around good people you know and i've i've purchased more from him than i think anybody um that i've ever bought from and you know outside of that i've been in his house i've toured his collection i've been over there multiple times you know uh once a year at least and you know he's just a good good guy so if i had to choose one person who's still actively in the hobby kyle by far he's, he's just an absolute phenomenal person all right. So uh, number eight, what other species do you keep? <laughs> Children. 
children. Not there it. you go. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't keep any other species, honestly. I haven't kept anything outside of boas since, God, long time, man. I mean, 20 years. It's always been boas. Um, things I do want to get is I want to get some uh, basin emeralds, for sure. I want a like, oh, wow. full wall yeah. of basins. Um, but if I'm going to do it, I'm going to go hard. Right. You know? yeah. yeah, I want I want the big dollar big boys. You know, I don't want the... the cheap ones and six thousand doesn't sound cheap but that's a cheap basin yeah you know when, when you're looking at it so basins are something i do want to do i like the arboreal species uh chris gilbert he's another good friend of mine he uh he's trying to get me into all these like uh kind of unknown little connoisseur type species because he keeps all sorts of weird stuff and he's always talking shit saying that i need to too so you know one day once i feel like i'm comfortable enough moving into another species and maybe have enough space for the appropriate care. You know, I'm not going to just get a species and keep it like a boa if it's not supposed to be, you know? Yeah, no, for sure, dude. So, um, number nine, what's one fact about you that most people who first meet you wouldn't guess? Hmm. Fact about me that most people wouldn't guess. Uh, I don't know, honestly. I mean, it's kind of weird. Like, doing it online right i think the right. people's first perception of me is is like oh he's a dick <laughs> you know or he's an ass but i i that i'm actually a nice guy how about that because yeah, their first impression is that i'm probably an ass but in reality i'm like super chill you know and and, and that kind of leads us to the next one what's like one common misconception uh do you oh think yeah kind of exists out there in the hobby yeah i guess you? that's that that's probably the biggest misconception is that they that they uh think I'm a dick. This, the second biggest misconception is, you know, they think that this was all just given and not earned. Right. And, you know, pe- people have this idea of like, oh, well, so-and-so gave you money or you took a loan out or you did this or your wife pays for everything, that type of thing. Well, first off, when you're married, you're a team, right? So anything right. you do, it's teamwork. doesn't matter who's who's, right? Everything is for everybody. Um, secondly, doesn't matter what people do or how they get it right it's not your business if if i mean that's just hater talk you know what i mean so you know the 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 perception that what i have or the what we do as as a family over here and and in the hobby isn't earned i think that's that's a big misconception all right uh 11 what makes you think what's like the one thing that makes you say what was i thinking when you look back at your time in the hobby uh, you know, I used, to, I used to think that more back in the day, I think. Um, now, I, I really just enjoy it, honestly. I uh, I think some of the people I've mentored, <laughs> I look back and I'm like, oh, man, all the time spent trying to help you out, you still do the same dumb shit. But, right. Yeah, I mean, but that that's, that's, that's the thing, too, is I want people to look at me as someone who they can go to. You know, I don't want to be so considered so elitist that they're like oh well we can't even ask him a question you know like if you got something i'll help you you know but yeah i mean i don't know i don't really i don't really think that honestly not anymore i i used to but i mean i'm in a good place now you know and our family's in a good place uh collections in a good place i mean my headspace is good so yeah i mean i don't i don't think like what was i thinking hardly ever like i can't even think of a time when i thought that recently at least all right, man. Last question. What's one tip you would give new breeders or people looking to get into the hobby? Patience. Harkens back to the first of this this podcast. Patience, right. man. You know, do your research. Educate yourself. Surround yourself by good people. 
you know, um, don't assume just because someone's been doing it a long time that they're always right. You know, it's just, it's just like science. Science is always right until they prove it wrong, right? Right. And so, you know, if, if what works for me might not work for you, but don't necessarily abolish the idea that what I'm trying to tell you to do might be a better way. You know, give it a shot. You might kick me another idea. We put two ideas together. Boom, we're both better off. You know, like that's what it's supposed to be. Is camaraderie, work together, cooperative. You know, it, it's it's uh, def- definitely dot your dot your eyes, cross your t's before you want to do it. Be prepared to have babies and take care of the babies because again, they're a lot of animals. You know, and that's a cu- couple pieces of advice. I mean, I got a lot of advice I could give people, but if I had to do do like a quick one, is patience and education, honestly. Awesome, man. So, dude, that kind of covers all the items that I wanted to talk to you about today. So, do you have any shout outs? Anybody you want to say hi to, real quick? Oh, um, let me think. Well, let's give a shout out to Jesse for sure over at Freedom Breeder. He always takes care of me. Um, I try, I try and, uh, you know, reciprocate it. Great dude. Best racks out there, in my opinion. Um, great guy. Uh, who else? Give a shout out to my wife for sure. She's uh, my better half. Definitely better looking, too. <laughs> For sure. Um, I mean, really, really, anyone, anyone who's who's on board with Team No Sleep. I mean, shout out to the people that burn that midnight candle for their family, work hard for their animals and their dreams. I mean, it's it doesn't come easy, but nothing good ever does. And so, you know, put in the time. Like you, you might get kicked and and feel like you're down, but it all comes back around. You know, you get out what you put in. So yeah, shout out, shout out to anyone who's Team No Sleep. And I mean, true Team No Sleep. You know, bust your ass. There's no replacement for hard work. So if you if you want it, just chase it, you know. Amen to the, on that, dude. So tell the people where they can find you, where they can see some of your animals, and where they could uh, look to purchase some stuff from you. Uh, I don't really have too much out there um, as far as, as like where they can go. To, I mean, really just Facebook. If you look up Boa Addicts, it's like www.facebook.com slash Boa Addicts forward slash Boa Addicts. I do post on there quite a bit when I'm not banned for trolling people. Um, <laughs> also on Instagram, if you look up Boatics on Instagram, um, most people sales-wise actually just hit me up in private and they say, hey, I'm looking for this or what do you got that fits in this? My next comment is or response would be, well, what's your budget? Because, I mean, you know, people do know that I, I kind of cater to the higher-end stuff. But, you know, I, I do have ranges of stuff for most people. You know, if, if they want something, we find out what their budget is and, Show them a multitude of animals, see what they like. I, I currently have about 80 on the block. So, you know, if people want BPI stuff, I'm probably one of the go-tos at this point. Um, best project out there, in my opinion. So, you know, yeah. It's about All right. That. Awesome, man. So can you hang out with us for a little bit longer? We're going to talk about the VPI morph. All right, brother? All right, guys, welcome back. So I appreciate all you guys uh, getting back on here. So I want to talk about uh, a little bit about the VPI gene. So right now, for the most part, the VPI gene is one of the most popular genes that are currently out there. And I know uh, Thomas has got that pretty deep through his collection, as do I. Uh, But I know um, a lot of people have been concerned with the frequency of the VPI gene among collections. Will that mean that the gene price will eventually go down will it mean that the gene is played out so we want to really examine the gene um and see you know what the future potential is and kind of some of the background so thomas you want to kind of talk a little bit about how you got involved in vpi uh yeah so back in what was it 2012 
I uh, I ended up grabbing on a cash plus trade deal with Tim Koffenhofer, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Right. Uh, Widow Peak 09 male uh, produced by Tracy. And that animal's still kicking today. You know, he's going to be almost 12 years old, I think. Um, still still in a collection actually over at Marie's place right now. Um, you know, I, I grabbed that in 09, bred that to a Rothenbach Aztec, and made my first Aztec head BPIs in 2013. So, I mean, I've you know, it was it was my second litter actually that I've ever had was wow. Aztec Heavy APIs, and back in 2013, that was pretty baller, you know. Like I, I, uh, it was it was an immediate goal of mine to to go towards that BPI stuff, and you know, I, I do have uh, granddaughters of that that litter now, which is pretty cool. You know, it's it's pretty deep in the collection itself from that original animal, which I think is epic. And it, I mean, you know, let's throw it back to Midas. Uh, King Midas was his name, and or is his name actually because he's still around. Uh, one of the most beautiful Widow Peak gold clean BPIs I've ever seen. You know, honestly, I wish I never got rid of him. Um, for for what he was, and for the lineage and the history on that snake, man, I, I he's he's dads to hundreds at this point. You know, like it's it's pretty cool. But yeah, B, BPI, man, it's it's one of my fortes by far. It's probably my my favorite recessive morph, and and one that I probably have more of in my collection than anything. So give us a couple of highlights of kind of what you're doing with it currently, what you've done in the past, maybe some of the animals that you've produced that you're pretty proud of, and gotcha. kind of what you feel is the future of, of, of this gene. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, you know, I, you know, like we had talked previously, um, I purchased Anthony's collection uh, in 2013, and he was notorious for having some of the absolute best VPIs at the time. Uh, you know, the vast majority he had gotten from Tracy, and this is back when Pink Panther was legit Pink Panther. Right. And, you know, he also was the founder of Red Rum Lineage. And so he had uh, produced some Red Rum head BPIs in 2011. Uh, the Red Rum Matriarch came from Pacific Coast, which was just a very abnormally red uh, imperator uh, import boa. And he bred a Pink Panther BPI to her and produced the Red Rum head BPIs. And then in 2013, he bred one of the males from that known as hot sauce infamous very famous snake in the vpi game um to a pink panther uh, vpi visual female from tracy and she had petco which is you know my 2013 red rum vpi uh og queen bee man never even bred her i have never found a male that i wanted to put her to um the i thought would justify me uh you know risking her and so <laughs> I have the oldest and especially at the time, the nicest red rum BPI sitting in a cage, getting fed and just happy as a fat clam. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I started to really hit into the, the color base. Um, red rum is my strict combination for color that I use polygenic, you know, as we kind of described a, a small lineage um, associated with that. I hit, Red Rum VPI Jungle Sunglows or Junglos in 2015. And from those animals, I'm finally breeding the females now, five years old. And their brother, who I have raised, um, he's produced now two litters for me and hopefully another one or two this year. Um, I hit the Red Rum Hypo Jungles Double Head Blood VPI. Mm-hmm. And you know all the combinations within 
And then I did a, a blood that I produced in 2013, actually, my mom's boa. I gave it to her in 2013, so it's her snake. I bred uh, the Red Rum Junglo to her and produced those hats. And then, um, you know, I've, I'm desperately trying to get the VPI snow version of that so I can kind of see in, you know, these are all pet projects. These are things I want to see. This isn't, like, necessarily public consumption. But I want to see how that red is playing into the VPI snows. Why are we right. seeing really yellow VPI snows, why are we seeing really white VPI snows? And I have both combinations, right? But I want to know why, like what traits of these animals is causing that hereditary color change, right? Between the animals, between littermates, one white, one really yellow. Is it because the really yellow one is technically really more red or is the white one really more red? I don't know. So it's kind of a pet project. I want to do the red room tea snows. I might hit that this year, which would be pretty epic. Um, and the VPI snow game, man, I, it's, it's probably outside of the color game, VPI snow is my thing. I, I don't know of probably pretty much anyone that has, has the, the capability with the VPI snow stuff that I do. And that's specifically because it's probably my favorite combination to work with, you know, the type, type one anery and VPI put together. So yeah, no, hundred percent. So let me ask you: Do you feel like it, the like the VPI gene is becoming oversaturated in collections at the moment? No, I mean that that's like saying like, and, and see, this is coming just from experience over time, and obviously catering to like the high end stuff. Um, you know, that would be like saying like, is is call strain albinism oversaturated? Well, no, there's right. always a market for it, right? It's like it's like our car is oversaturated now. If you had five thousand five million Veyrons. Uh, $2.4 million a piece <laughs> might be oversaturated, right. right? But you don't because they're very unique. They're very connoisseur. They're very rare in that quality range. You have 5 million civics. Yeah. So there's a range, right? From like low end, just pet store grade all the way up to the super high end, you know, best of the best stuff. And so in that you find a market of, of buyers who have a specific budget and, and this isn't someone, you know, again, people always think I'm an elitist. This isn't me talking down to anybody. You know, you have the people that can afford a certain level of animal. That's great. If that's the animal that makes them happy. Cool. You know, I personally would save a little more and get something a little different. Maybe. Who knows? You know, everyone's an individual. Get what you like. But, I mean, as far as saturation, you know, the, the key to avoid a saturation and then thus like a demonetization of their value is quality up right. your quality if you up the quality quality always sells i mean I've, I've seen regular vpi animals just regular vpi sell for 350 bucks and i can still get five grand for a red rum right so absolutely but lineage quality history level of care and and what i always tell people too like like don't even take into consideration in just it's it's isolatory factor of like best quality deserves best price remember you're buying the breeder too right. so you can get i mean you might pay a little bit more money with me but you know i'm going to back you up 100 percent, right and I, and I have the ability to do it that's one of the big differences because people sometimes will ask me well why do you charge more for your animals and i'm like well i mean because something over to go wrong if the quality of the animal isn't up to the par i got you i'll take care of you you know and and whereas you might kick someone some money and it could have been a better deal but if that animal has a problem or if that animal you know you get it and you're not satisfied with it and you hit them up you're like well i want my money back well tough 
you know, and, and there's only ever been one time when I've had someone return a snake and, you know, I, I <laughs> this dude's out of the hobby now and he's a total douche nugget. So, you know, it, it, it was actually a good situation, but he was, it had nothing to do with the animal, everything to do with the person, you know, no, and that's completely you know, understandable. Yeah. Outside of that, you know, it's, it's always been kosher, but yeah, you know, I mean, quality, quality reigns supreme always day in, day out. And, and, you know, the fortunate reality is the further we get in the genetics, and the more quantity is produced, people are able to get, continue to get higher quality animals. Because just like any market, right? It's a supply and demand issue. They can get these higher quality animals for a lower value and then start to plug them into their projects. And instead of polishing the turd, they're increasing the quality of their animals. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, 100%, dude. And plus, I don't think everything's been done with the VPI gene. I think, like, every year it seems like we're discovering new combinations. Like, for example, have you had a chance to see that habanero that was produced uh, yeah, earlier this yeah, year? Yeah, from, from, from Tim over in, in Germany. Yeah. yeah, Tim in Germany. Phenomenal. You know, mixing the VPI, a VPI sunglow into the leopard. Who knew that it was going to produce that level of pinks and you know kind of those oranges with it and it's yeah, essentially like an animal that we've never seen before and we really don't know as you were saying how the vpi gene is going to react for example when the with the pied when the pied becomes more readily available throughout you know the the hobby mm-hmm. so i think there's definitely definitely a lot of potential with it now oh yeah 100 percent for sure now, well what, well and then and then you know just i i'm a gene stacker i love right. just mass combinations of stuff and not not to the point of all pythons where you don't know what you have but yeah i mean like when you when you mix a vpi snow with aztec you get a unique look but then you throw jungle in there and it changes the color completely oh yeah you know, it changes uh, it changes it you know into yeah, a, yeah, a completely so, so different animal yeah 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 totally different because i i have litter mates where one is like a vpi snow glow aztec and i'll compare it to like the snow glow aztec jungle and they're completely totally polar opposite it's just that one single genetic that changed it so drastically and then when you're looking at like um the new combinations with like the leopard and then the blood you know uh right randy and shane hit the hit the first uh vpi blood they they called the ametrine uh, i believe 2018 they hit that and i got a mail out of that litter yeah and you know several have been produced since then um but you know the combination on that what we're seeing now is is phenomenal combinations but now imagine throwing anery in there who the hell knows throwing jungle in there on top of that or aztec on top of that who knows i mean we'll find out in the next five years you know so it and that's that's why you know i i feel like the hobby is just going to get better because you know the the amount of combinations that we have the ability to do is just increasing exponentially yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, man. And I think one of the, I was having a conversation with another breeder a couple of days ago, and he was basically asking me, you know, what are some of the opportunities left with this gene? Why should people continue to invest in it? And I think, as you're saying, you know, obviously there's the quality aspect. There's the fact that we don't know what the gene is doing, you know, with all the morphs that are currently out there and with all the various, uh, you know, polygenic lines. But also, there's nothing wrong with when some of the prices drop a little bit and then you start attracting new people into the hobby. I remember the first time I saw the VPI gene, and I think it was in Vin Russo's book, right? And it was uh, demonstrating one of uh, the VPI snakes that uh, uh, the Barkers had at the time, dude. That blew me away, man. And like, I know my first couple years in the hobby, and this is like back in the late 90s, mind you, I was, you know, that was the snake that I was chasing, the one that I was hoping to produce. And I was lucky enough that in 2010, 
I was able to get two pairs of um, of hypos uh, that were that were het, and I was able to produce some VPI jungles. Like I think I was one of the first few guys to produce a a, a VPI super jungle. But yeah, man, I think that we're only really scratching the surface of what, what this gene's potential is. No, I I agree hundred percent. You know, it, it really just comes down to what individual look you want and what combinations you like. And you know, a lot of this stuff, I I don't think people have that that level of expectation of that, you know, what, what Tim is calling the habanero now, um, because we, we've seen BPI leopard and while they were cool, they weren't like exponentially cool. But right. then all of a sudden he threw hypo into it and then it's like, Holy shit. Yeah. You know, totally a different animal. And so the thing is, is God, could you see... imagine red rum into that dude? <laughs> well, so that, that's why I did the red rum jungle times the blood. Right. And so, you know, I, I'm attempting to pull in the red rum color into the ametrine line, you know, and jungle on top of that. And so that, that's one thing too, is, you know, taking your time. Like I could take many of my VPI animals and just produce more VPIs, right. but I'm producing it. Yeah. Like even, even Tony hit me up, Anthony, um, you know, who founded red rum, he hit me up like a year and a half ago. He's like, dude, why do you keep making heads? He's like, just, just start making red rums, you know, because he, he wants to get one back, actually. You right. know, like it's it's his line. They paying homage to him. And I was like, well, I mean, I have all of these plans of like, I want to make this, this, this and this. And I want to do it like on one off stuff that no one can do. So then when I did the blood that I produced in 13 to the red rum VPI jungle that I produced in 15, I make my heads. And coincidentally, that was the first pairing that I ever paired where I produced both parents. And so I was like. I mean, what what heavier hitting litter could I do for the future than something like that, infusing that red rum into there? Now, I'll throw a curveball your way. What if I put Anri and Leopard into that too? Whoo! Yeah, dude, uh, I'm guessing you're going to make a purple snake that way, man. Well, but but see, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe, we don't know. That's that's the fun <laughs> in it, right? Maybe, we don't know till it till it till it's born. Yeah, I mean, maybe it'll look like dog shit. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's but but see, that's the thing is is you know, kind of make your own path. Like, like right. have it, have a set goal and say, this is what I want to do. Like, like don't go, don't chase that short term come up of like, okay, well I'm going to just breed this just so I can sell the babies. Like, what do you want to make as a keeper and a breeder? What do you want to produce? And so to me, I want to see a red rum VPI jungle snow globe, Whew. leopard, leopard, leopard. I forgot leopard, but that's what I want to see. So right. I'm going to make the heads to do it. And then, if I'm by God's grace is lucky enough. Cause I mean, odds wise on that going from like a head to a head, that's like, that's really pushing the envelope on right. odds. Right. But if the odds hit, I might be able to see it. And then, you know, like I said, it's like five years out four or five years out, but you know, I'll make it happen. And, and fortunately I've, I've had an inordinate amount of success with my red rum stuff. I've sold almost none of it. So I've raised it all for years. Uh, I've produced my first red rums in 15 and I produce multiple litters a year. I keep everything. Um, what that'll allow me to do is increase quality on quality. Uh, I do outcross pairings, so then I can breed back, have stronger outcross-based genetics, uh, you know, for uh, reduce the inbreeding. But then I can also select the heritable traits. Because one thing you see in these polygenics is you'll see these animals that are super nice. They don't make like the best babies. Right. I want to pick like the the lineage of animals within a litter that 
consistently produce the best babies every time and then put those back best babies to best babies. And then all of a sudden, hopefully what I'll see is even better than the parents. And so, I mean, VPI is just barely hitting the surface, dude. I mean, VPI snows are still super rare overall and especially um, among like mass majority collections. And so, you know, plugging in a bunch of codoms and more recessives into those, I don't know of a better thing I could do. You know, uh, I mean, imagine a VPI snow glow Aztec blood. That's another project I'm working on. So, you know, uh, snow glow Aztec times blood, make the hets and, you know, breed the hets uh, down the road. And, and I mean, fortunately, since I have a VPI snow glow male from eight, 18, uh, he's a big boy. You know, I, I can outcross him to multiple different animals or because of my vpi snow stock i can take like a jungle motley blood and breed that to a vpi snow globe so then you have jungle motley aztec blood vpi snows and snow globes and why not right yeah why not man? <laughs> that's insane so i mean that that's kind of my goal is is I'm, I'm gonna throw the book at it dude everything i can and see what i can make and you know, first for first and foremost, it's all for me. You know, uh, keep keep the best, sell the rest. That's kind of my philosophy. Well, I just kind of keep everything. But I'm I'm with you, dude. Honestly, I think one of the most difficult parts of the hobby for me, dude, is letting go of animals. Like, Absolutely. Like just today, I have a couple animals up on Morph Market, and uh, I got hit up about selling one of them, and I just felt this dread. I was like, I really want to keep this animal. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know? and and and, and you do it's like you got to pry it out of me, dude. <laughs> yeah, well, well, of course, and 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 so you know, as a seller, I mean, that, that maybe that's another like pro tip for for people just coming in. Like, if you don't want to sell something, like if you're not committed to selling it, but you're kind of like fifty fifty, right? You post it up and you put like a like an obscene price on it. If someone wants to pay it, let them pay it, right? Like yeah. like you, like your obscene price is like okay, well, I can't refuse it. So you put your obscene price on it, and if they want to pay it, then you're good. Um, but more often than not, it'll hit that two-year mark, and you're like, all right, hold back, you know? Right. And and then you raise it, and, and you didn't really want to sell it anyway. So, you know, it, don't, don't ever do something. Oh, the struggle is real, man. The struggle is real. And for me, and the funny thing is it's it's just a ball python, but I've been trying to hit this particular combo for about three years. Yeah. <laughs> and I finally yeah, so hit it this year. So now I'm like, oh, man, it pains me. To, yeah, it's to, pet, to it's pet it. project, you know, yeah. it was like a goal. And, yeah, yeah. and, you know, one thing I find with a lot of keepers is like, once they hit that goal snake, it's not like, okay, well, I hit a goal, I'm going to move on. It's like, no, now I want to Now it, it evolves. Yeah. Yeah. And then it evolves into like, okay, what else can I do? But then if you sell the animal that was your goal, might be a detriment to your future goal, because then you don't have that animal. And so, yeah, it's a perpetual cycle of like, should I, should I, should I? And then you're like, shouldn't I shouldn't, but then... You know, at this point, I mean, and then I'm, my I'm wife so... yells at me. She's like, just sell the damn snake. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. Because yeah. it, because it, it's easy as an outsider looking in, you know, they don't, they don't see the inner workings of our brains, but you know, I'm fortunate enough now where I've built the collection to where I'm completely self-contained. Like I, I don't need to outsource anything. I, I haven't even bought a bow in two years outside of Kyle. Right. Um, Kyle's the only one. And you know, at this point there's a couple things I want, but I don't need. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll just make my own, you know, like I, I, I want a sun dragon because I have the fire jungle motley's, mm -hmm. um, 50% blood call that I produced in 18, the 
I need Sun Dragons for so that I can prove out either the blood or the call or both. And if not, then they're 100% heads, right? Right. So, and then, you know, that's a pet project I'm trying is I want to, I want to hit a leucistic that looks like a calico DRMB. Um, it's that white snake that looks like blood is splattered all over it because these leucistics, many of them have the speckling, right? Right. So if I can get that in a red dragon or a sun dragon form to where those spots are bright red, I have a white, stark white snake with bright red spots. Dude, that would look like a giant palmetto corn snake. Exactly. That's the exact look I'm going for. And the, but imagine is because these, this fire lineage is super, super Colombian heavy, like big genetics on the on this Colombian side imagine that at seven feet oh absolutely man and then imagine throwing vpi in there so where the spots it's like some blood splatter with a couple of other colors with, with like yellow and yeah, i mean i mean yeah, it, dude, but see, that's the beauty of it right is is you can do so many combinations that have never even been done and i don't even know if anyone's even thought of that like i've told a couple people of the idea and they're like oh yeah that sounds like that's possible and i'm like well yeah i wouldn't be doing it if i didn't think it was but I mean, maybe it doesn't pan out and I get a leucistic with bright red eyes, which right. I've already had. You know, I had the first sharp leucistic Chase Baker made. Um, super right. cool. You know, it's a white bow with, with bright red eyes. Um, still epic, you know, but we won't know until I do it. You know, and so I figure, oh, shit, I'll try. Might as well. It doesn't hurt anything, you know. Well, dude, man, I look. For, I hope you make it, dude, because I'm looking forward to seeing that and then trying to figure out a way to justify buying it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm about three and a half years from being able to, to give a test run, at least on females. And I mean, I don't buy adults anymore. Right. I, so, you know, I would have to get a sun dragon male and then breed it to the females I produced in 18. And I try and I try my absolute damnedest to not breed anything before um, four and a half years old at this point, uh, unless unless I have a young one, like three and a half cycling. They'll never I mean, I got, you know, Petco seven years old this year and she's never even been bred and she's a red rum vpi <laughs> you know it's, it's i'm not in a hurry you know team no rush that's my that's my other moniker team no sleep and team no rush like don't rush it man uh, there's so much cool shit to still chase and so many things to do there's there's no reason to hurry you know 100 percent, man well dude it sounds like there's still so much to, do, to be done with vpi and i think there's it's a giant opportunity for all those out there absolutely yeah, right, people man. shouldn't scoff. People shouldn't scoff at the opportunity. I mean, uh, really, there there's so many combinations that have yet to be seen. It's so infant. I mean, call albino. I should know the history on it, honestly, because I've been around long enough. But I mean, those were in the early '90s, call albinos. Right. And look at the stuff people are making now. You know, like like just a straight sun glow albino that has like insanely colored sides and bright red heads. And I mean, we look we look at the transition from these original call albinos, Pete Call bred at like 18 to 20 months old, and you know they were siblings, and he bred them together. And for some god, who knows reason, they actually produced at like 18 or 20 months old. And, and this is what I've been told, you know. So it's a kind of little grapevine. I mean, of course, if someone wants to correct me on that, they can. But you know, we see that transition of these original call to what we see now and it's just such a world of difference and so there's a lot to do on all the morphs you know there's so much cool stuff i mean boas are the best by far that's why i keep 400 of them amen to that all right man well shoot appreciate your insight with that we'll go ahead and wrap this thing up for sure wow guys that was a great episode tom really dropped some major knowledge on us today join us next time when we speak to sergio hernandez and chat about the labyrinth project 
Thanks for joining us, guys. We appreciate you guys tuning in. Do us a favor. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a five-star review and subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Until next time, grow them slow.